This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the Country Hour, again live from day two of the largest food, or one of the largest food and ag tech conferences in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm Cassie Huff with you for the next hour. And the topics we're going to tackle today are one that's really come to the fore in recent years, and that is carbon farming. A lot of people have heard about it now. Maybe you're intrigued by what it could mean for you, whether it will work for your business or not. We're going to get into that soon. Also, you'll hear from companies bringing seaweed to the fashion world. The seaweed's normally associated with reducing methane emissions in livestock, but how can that be applied to fashion? I will tell you all about that in the next half hour. But we'll get straight into it and uh, we will look at uh, one of the companies that you might have heard of in the carbon farming space. If you've been following it, you've probably heard of my first guest, Alastair McLeod. He's the executive chairman of MacDoc Group, the private investment company that became well known for the deal they did with Microsoft to sell about $500,000 worth of carbon credits from their Australian properties to Microsoft through a, an American crediting scheme. And he joins me now. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. Thanks for having me on the show. So... You and went down this track a couple of years ago. Can you take me through the, the last couple of years and what this deal with Microsoft has meant for not just carbon farming in Australia, but your business as well? So what was interesting, Cassie, was that after we did that sort of reasonably high-profile deal, we got inundated with a bunch of other graziers particularly, all, kind of, all saying, how do we do something like this? And... and um, the reality was that most people couldn't do it because they didn't have the data that we'd collected over the years that we'd been changing in the management on our farm. So uh, we we set out to um, set up a new business that would enable other graziers to do exactly what we'd done and take advantage of the opportunities in the carbon farming space. And the only difference with what we're doing now, with what we did back then, is that we're now very committed to doing this through the regulated scheme, the regulated Australian scheme through the ERF, uh, which is almost without peer in the world in terms of being one of the best carbon farming um, operations that, that's done anywhere. So, Why do you say that, given that your Microsoft deal was done through an American crediting system? So, so the American uh, um, carbon farming world is, uh, it's not an official government um, marketplace. There's a bunch of voluntary markets that are regulated by, in our case, some people called the Regen Network. Um, there's people, people, there's the gold standard, there's some people called Vera, that all have methodologies that allow you to um, uh, uh, trade carbon through their own sort of private registries. Um, the, uh, the the Australian regulated scheme, regulated by the Clean Energy Regulator, and uh, which allows um, the um, Emissions Reduction Fund to buy carbon credits from farmers, is is of a very consistently high standard. Uh, and um, once you're issued with an ACU, an Australian carbon credit unit, you're trading in some of the um, uh, you know, you've got some of the best currency, if you like, in terms of carbon credits that are issued anywhere in the world. 
very simply, what makes it better? Is it uh, the, the research underpinning it, the, um, rel- the, how replicable it is? How does it work? Yes, I mean, I think, I think the research underpinning it, the methodologies that are, that are put through the Carbon Farming Initiative here have been very thoroughly researched. You might have, uh, your listeners might have heard recently about the Chubb Review that um, uh, the government launched recently to kind of do a complete review of the carbon farming um, uh, methodologies in place in Australia. And the Chubb Review did a pretty exhaustive um, uh, um, set of research into what was currently available uh, and uh, made some recommendations, but but basically said, look, this, um, these carbon farming schemes we've got here are, are pretty good and we should uh, encourage greater take-up of them. So that, I think, is what's going to happen. And... As part of what you mentioned at the start there, you were sort of lone rangers there when you did the deal almost with um, Microsoft, but you've been looking at ways for other farmers to be able to come into this carbon farming space, and you've done that through the Atlas Carbon Project. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So, so um, in order to explain Atlas Carbon, I probably need to go back and explain how it is that graziers particularly can... Um, uh, sequester more carbon in their soils uh, and because that's what we did at Wilmot when we did our carbon deal uh, and that's all um, related to the way you're managing your livestock um, I'm sure lots of listeners would have heard of, of you know rotational grazing um, management systems um, that's an important part of it but understanding how you maximize the product the productivity benefit from your rotational grazing and therefore the potential to sequester soil carbon from your rotational grazing is um, a whole different ball game. And a few years ago, we developed a system called Maya Grazing, uh, which enabled us and other graziers to really maximize the productivity from their grazing systems. And one of the side benefits of that was that they could sequester carbon. Now, at the time, we were just operating the grazing management software. We weren't adding the opportunity for these graziers to do soil carbon deals. So Atlas Carbon has now been launched in conjunction with Maya Grazing to ensure that our grazing customers uh, can actually do soil carbon deals as well. And how much interest are you seeing from farmers because there are a lot of people who have done rotational grazing for many years but perhaps haven't baselined it and and measured it the way you have how do they get into it so the first thing to say is that there's a lot of confusion out there from people that are yeah they've done a bit of reading about um carbon projects um people are nervous about the costs they're nervous about the commitment they've got to make to um, the regulator in terms of the permanence of their carbon um, that they sequester. So, and, the, and then, you know, there's a bunch of people out there that are offering um, these opportunities, but they all have slightly different business models. So the first thing that we've done is we've set about to kind of make this simple for other graziers to understand uh, what the costs are of entering into a carbon project, but more importantly, um, what the potential benefits for them are going to be, uh, and 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 so so when we when we bring a new customer into the fold, uh, they've got a very clear idea of 
what the rewards for doing a carbon project are going to be. Could there be a liability, though, if you were to reduce your soil carbon in some way? So, so I think that this is a big um, fear that is unfounded because what we discovered um, when we did our carbon deal was that if you get your management right, um, the fear of the, the, the concern about losing carbon from the soil is much diminished. But it's all about management. You've got to make sure that when the dry times come, you don't overgraze. Uh, the minute you overgraze is the minute that you end up losing what carbon you've sequestered uh, over the over the periods when it's been raining. So managing your way through the seasonal conditions is a really, really important way of ensuring that if you sequester carbon, you keep it in the soil. But perhaps at a reduced stocking rate that may have financial implications? Oh, well, um, so that's... <laughs> Uh, that's a whole different debate. Um, we believe that if you run out of grass, you have to sell stock. And we believe that's the right financial calculation to make for your business. There's lots of people that believe that when it gets dry, you, you take the cost of feeding your stock and you leave them there so that when the rains come back again, you've still got your livestock. We're great believers in not feeding stock and not spending all that money on feeding stock uh, and by the way we don't you know we don't believe the government uh, the, the last the last drought I think cost the government 14 billion dollars um, mainly in in stock feed um, uh, uh, to, to grazing subsidies subsidies so we think there's an issue here for the government to kind of go look maybe people should be thinking about lightening up the amount of livestock they've got on their properties when it stopped raining instead of keeping them on their properties, ruining um, their landscapes, uh, ruining their bank balance because they spend a lot of money feeding stock, um, and actually not really doing their animals any good either. Before I let you go, carbon farming is a very hot topic at the moment. Some of the investors I've spoken to are actually worried that it's perhaps at the top of a cycle and may even be overpriced at the moment. Do you agree with that? No. No? Do you see more investment in this space and, and where the investment's going? Look, I, I think um, if you just look at the Australian domestic market, you've got the government now uh, looking at revising their, the safeguard mechanism, which is going to drive up the price of carbon offsets. Uh, um, if, if, we're, if, if, unless the supply of carbon credits comes onto the marketplace... Um, the price of carbon is going to go um, much much higher, and the government have said that they want to cap their commitments at seventy five dollars, seventy five dollars a ton. Um, you know, the spot price I think is about forty bucks a ton at the moment. So even the government are kind of saying, look, the price of carbon is going to go up. There's still scope. Well, it's a very interesting space, and uh, you certainly I think uh, lit a fire on a lot of people with that deal you did a couple of years ago, and it sounds like it's only gone from strength to strength since then with the, this new announcement this week as well. So the one thing I can tell you, Cassie, is there's going to be many more, much better deals than the one we did in Microsoft. That, that was just a little indicator of what's going to be possible, but there's going to be many more, much better deals, I think. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate you stopping by the Country Hour. Alistair McLeod from Mac Group. Thanks, Thanks for having me.
As I said, that was Alistair McLeod from MacDoc Group speaking there. And we're going to continue with this theme of carbon farming uh, and looking at the way carbon can work in the, the system. Dr Nicole Buckley-Biggs is the Director of Sustainability with AgriWeb, which is a farm management software company. And so to find out how AgriWeb works in this carbon space, um, Dr Buckley-Biggs joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be here. So you've come across from the States and... I'm interested to know, what's, what's the work that AgriWeb does? How does it fit in with carbon farming? AgriWeb is, at its most basic, a digital livestock management software. And it is today the global leader in doing just that. We have reached scale where you know 25% of producers with grazing animals in Australia are using AgriWeb. We very much have a presence in the U.S., in the U.K., in Brazil, and in Africa. And, you know, our producers are using AgriWeb to manage their businesses, to get more out of their businesses, to manage their grazing, their pastures, their employees, and their finances all in one place so that they don't need to have 10 different apps doing 10 different things. They can do it in a streamlined fashion. Of course, that all relates to sustainability, but for the most part, when producers start using AgriWeb, it's for reasons of finances, uh, reducing their time burden, uh, improving their auditing process, and making it easier for their families to continue their operations for the next generation. And what are some of the, um, so it's largely just measuring or allowing growers to, to measure what they're doing and actually have it in a database. And having that baseline is, is the starting off point, which was mentioned with the previous speaker about how they were able to measure for a long time and, and actually understand their baseline. How is uh, AgriWeb working with growers to, to try and enhance their ability to access carbon and carbon credits? That's a great question. So first of all, the, the different types of data that producers are using AgriWeb to document include things like stocking rates, grazing movements, fertilizer application. Are you irrigating or, or tilling? And if so, where? To what extent? What kind of fertilizer or, or manure are you using? And all of those things have relevance for uh, climate action, right? We need to understand not only the soil carbon dynamics on that property, but also the overall methane emissions, nitrous oxide emissions that go into a, a climate footprint. So the um, first step for any producer is, is gathering their data in AgriWeb uh, and, and making sure that it's, you know, it's high quality, it's real-time data because they're using AgriWeb in the field as they're moving animals. So instead of having it in a notebook or pot potentially not even writing it down at all, now they have the opportunity to have it right on their smartphone and not have to recall what they did you know, uh, later um, at their computers. So then the next step is if you have this data uh, stored, you can start to unlock really interesting opportunities around sustainability and not necessarily carbon offsets. You can work with your financial lender to improve your financing rates based on your um, practices, your climate resilience. You can uh, get um, you know, streamlined access to certification programs that care about your environmental sustainability and can pay you a premium for, uh, for your land stewardship. Um, you can potentially report into a, um, a supply chain, a commoditized supply chain that's selling to some of the biggest grocers and retailers out there um, that also have sustainability commitments, and now they want to know where their meat is coming from and what is the footprint of that meat. So the, the picture is much bigger than carbon offsets. Uh, it happens to be the same data, though, so if you want to do a carbon offset project, we need to know um, your stocking rates, your inputs, and, and those things can be pushed to a carbon offset project developer if that's what the producer wants to do. 
And how much um, onus or emphasis is being placed on this accountability, you being able to prove what you are claiming to your bank, to your buyer, whoever you, you might be making claims to, how much more pressure is coming on that to be more robust? The accuracy of the data that folks are collecting in a tool like AgriWeb, I don't think is, is the question here. It's, you know, how do we incentivize producers to really capture that data um, as they're doing um, their day-to-day managing their operations, which are often complex and require, you know, all of the time of the day and night that they have, right? They don't have a lot of free time. So um, as, they're, as they're capturing um, their data, making sure that it's, it's um, easily captured in a format using this data schema that are shareable with, with others is, is our challenge and addressing questions around data privacy. It's not so much do we need to send somebody out into this pasture to make sure that this sheep moved from point A to point B and whether that was true. You're an American company, but how much interest have you seen in Australia in, in uptake of it, not just agri but this, this sort of accounting system for the, the on-property things that happen? AgriWeb is actually an Australian company. Oh, uh, we are uh, an eight-year-old company. I joined it a year ago, coming out of my PhD program. Um, it was founded by um, three gentlemen, two of whom are Australian, out of Sydney. Um, two of them are from family operations, fifth, fifth and sixth generation operations. Um, and the third co-founder is American. So we are um, completely international. We have our engineering team in Sydney. We have a, a good number of folks in Denver, Colorado. We also have folks in Belfast and, and customers across those geographies. Um, today, and how does that work then for an accounting system when you have such varied environmental systems? Right. Uh, how that works is that we enable producers to make their own decisions. We don't tell them you should adopt rotational grazing because in a lot of ecosystems, rotational grazing will not make sense for them environmentally or financially. So what we do is provide them a tool where they can track what practices they're using and they can track their cost of production and they can track their carcass data. And then they can start to understand, okay, I tried these three different practices in three different paddocks. How did that work for me with my soil type, my precipitation level, you know, my family resources and time? Does, does that actually make sense for our business? and then start to iterate on that year on year to imp- improve their operation. Um, and, you know, in different regions, it might be pasture seeding uh, or grazing management or tree planting, and, and that will be very much regionalized. So we just give them the tool that they can use to, to apply uh, practices on the ground. Well, I have a lot more questions here for you, but we actually have to get to markets. So thank you so much for joining me today. Dr. My pleasure. Nicole Buckley-Biggs. And uh, it's, yeah, it, there's a lot of elements to this carbon farming to make it, it work and uh, a solid basis for the accounting and the information basis, I'm sure, is is key. So thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Nicole Buckley-Biggs, who is the Director of Sustainability at AgriWeb. I'm Cassie Huff. This is The Country Hour. It's 23 past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Quickly get to markets now, and John Traeger has the results from Dublin. Good afternoon, Quality was extremely mixed as agents offered 6,200 lambs and 2,200 sheep. An additional Victorian processor joined the usual buying group in a market that returned some mixed results. Light Sean Maria lambs were gaining plentiful and these eased $5 to $8 a head under indifferent competition. Processor lambs eased marginally in the early sales but sold to a firmer trend as the market progressed with the best of a few heavy light lambs picking at heavy lambs peaking at $240 per head. Mutton generally sold to a firm trend against an easier interstate market trend. 
The best of the young lambs sold from 170 to 210, as extremely light older lambs range from 80 to 125. Medium weights sold from 128 to 175, as heavy weights range from 180 to 200, with a few extreme heavyweights selling from 218 to $240 per head. Ram lambs sold in a wide range from 66 to $130 per head. Hoggett sold from 88 to 130, with light mutton selling from 72 to 110. Medium weight mutton ranged from 90 to 110, with extreme heavyweights making 105 to $134 per head. The few weathers on offer sold from 80 to $130 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, prices improved this week, reflecting a better quality offering as agents presented 300 live weight and 50 open auction calves. Competition was generally good, with restockers and feeders more active this week. Vila steers sold at 402 cents, with Vila heifers peaking at 370 cents. Yearling steers and a better quality selection sold from 398 to 402 cents, as yearling heifers sold from 314 to 364 cents. Grain steers sold in a wide range, making from 260 to a top of 404 cents, as grain heifers sold from 350 to 370 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold at 264 cents, as yearling bulls ranged from 348 to 368 cents, with heavy bulls selling from 200 to 230 cents a kilo. This is John Chagger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for that, John. And uh, Peter Kerr has the results from Mount Gambier. Good afternoon, Cass. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 22nd of February. Numbers these, the ages out of 684 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to the usual array of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker activity. Quality was generally good as the market sold from firm to dearer in price. Bigger steers to the trade range from 405 to 472 cents with similar heifers, making from 364 to 448. Feeders operated on steers from 385 to 455 cents and on the heifers from 335 to 395. Yearling steers attracted trade interest to 368 cents, as did the heifers from 322 to 390. Feeders sought steers from 368 to 385 cents and heifers to 330 with some restocker activity on steers from 352 to 440 cents a kilogram. Grown steers and bullocks to the trade range from 340 to 390 cents with feeder support from 370 to 400. Grown heifers to trade buyers returned from 338 to 385 cents as manufacturing steers. Sold from 260 to 300 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows rose up to 8 cents. They made from 277 to 328. Lighter lots from 220 to 260. While restockers turned cows back out to 277 cents a kilogram. Bulls sold from 240 to 270 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. We'll head across to the weather now to find out just how hot it's going to be across South Australia today. I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Mark Analak. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Yes, very hot conditions are forecast across today. You know, temperatures in the high 30s, low 40s, uh, as we've been talking about for the number of days. And those conditions will continue through tomorrow and even into Friday. So we're looking at uh, very hot conditions, severe heatwave conditions across much of the state. In fact, we have an extreme heatwave warning for Lower Air Peninsula. So very hot conditions for the next few days. There is a change on the way. A thundery change will enter the far west of the state probably late Thursday, 
move across the west during Friday morning uh, and reach central districts probably around about late afternoon Friday before moving into the northeast corner of the state during uh, the early hours of Saturday morning and, and on Saturday. That thundery change uh, is likely to bring some shower activity, uh, very patchy stuff around the place, um, of the order of maybe up to five millimetres, quite patchy. Um, but if you get caught under a thunderstorm, there could be a little bit more, and we're sort of estimating five to 20 millimetres uh, with any thunderstorms. By th Saturday morning, most of that thunderstorm activity should have cleared out uh, to the south. But with the trough lingering in the north, we could see some afternoon thunderstorms developing. Once that change goes through, milder conditions are forecast for the rest of the weekend and into early next week, Cassie. Thanks for that, Mark Analek there with the latest in this hot weather that this state is experiencing in the far west of New South Wales. It's going to be sunny in the upper western. The overnight temperatures will fall to between 17 and 25 degrees. The daytime temperatures will reach the mid to high 30s. The lower western will be sunny overnight there, getting down to 14 to 23. But during the day, again, the low to high 30s. I've got more to come on the Country Hour from Evoke Ag, one of the largest gatherings of agri-tech people, scientists, researchers, consumers in the Southern Hemisphere, so we will continue hearing some of the great stories out of this conference. It is coming up to Newstime as we approach the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, welcome to the program. If you're just joining me, I'm Cassie Huff, live from Evoke Ag, one of the largest agri-tech get-togethers in the world, particularly in the, the Southern Hemisphere. We've got about 1,600 people here for the uh, yesterday and today. They're learning about all sorts of things in relation to agri-tech and what's happening in Australia and around the world. In the next half hour, we're going to talk about the four Cs that have largely dominated the last couple of years. Uh, they are climate, COVID, conflict and cost. That just about sums up the last two years from a variety of different uh, angles. So we'll get into that in the next half hour or so and see how seaweed farming is working into fashion. That's coming up. But first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, five new Medicare urgent care clinics will open in South Australia in a bit to ease pressure on the state's hospital system. The clinic services will be bulk billed and open for extended hours, seven days per week and no appointment will be necessary. One is set to be established in Mount Gambier. 44 children have been rescued from hot cars this summer in South Australia, prompting an urgent call from the state's peak road safety organisation during this week's heatwave. RIA road service figures reveal that so far this year, 23 children have needed to be rescued as well as 14 animals. Last year, 514 children and pets needed to be freed from locked vehicles by RIA patrols. And the state's Environment Minister has announced the commencement of a review into duck hunting laws. The government will give notice today to establish a parliamentary select committee to look into animal welfare, sustainability, community attitudes, Aboriginal perspectives and economic considerations. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, 
We talk a lot on this program about consumers, what consumers are driving when it comes to food trends, whether it's alternative proteins or uh, perhaps packaging, less waste, that sort of thing. But there's another area where sustainability is really coming to the fore, and that is where socially conscious consumers are demanding increasingly sustainable fashion. And... uh, that's being addressed here at the conference. Sam Elson is the co-founder and CEO of Seaforest. He joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. And Jonathan Loban is the head of brand at MJ Bay. Good afternoon. Good day, Cassie. Is it Loban or Lobin? Uh, Lobin, but Lobin. I, I okay. prefer Loban. It sounds more elegant, doesn't it? <laughs> I just thought I'd check. Um, so we'll start with you, Sam. You used to be a fashion designer, and a couple of years ago you made the change to farming. Why is that? Well, it's really driven by climate change and, um, you know, even in my fashion days we had a a very much a a sustainability lean and and focus. Um, Back in the early 2000s we started one of the first sustainable fashion or apparel businesses in Australia. Um, But, you know, it was, I guess, uh, in uh, about 2017 I found out that, you know, um, you know, that within seaweed we have an amazing climate solution and it was... You know, at that time I started to look around at opportunities to pursue that pathway or that solution and um, stumbled on work being conducted by the CSIRO feeding a variety of sheep, uh, sorry, livestock, uh, this particular seaweed that could then uh, virtually eliminate methane emissions. And what I found was that at the time there was no one who knew how to grow it and no commercial supplier. So we started Sea Forest with a focus on trying to, you know, deliver this solution to the world and so it's been an exciting sort of four or five year journey and um, and has yielded some incredible results like we see here with the, the MJ Bauer work that we're doing together. And there's been a lot of coverage of the work you've been doing. Seaweed has largely become um, quite well known now for its methane abatement uh, possibilities. You last year raised about $35 million from investors to help push the company towards commercialising the livestock supplement. Where's that up to? It's going really well. I think pr- production is um, is not our bottleneck at this stage. So now we have uh, the capacity to feed over 100,000 head of cattle, which was always the goal. Um, but uh, where, where we're struggling, I, get, I think, is in market development. So there's a lack of drivers in place um, for farmers to really adopt this so there's le- uh, incentives if you like through the ability for them to access carbon credits um, or, or other incentives that might enable um, them to uptake the technology so it's just a very small cost to, to farmers it's only a, it's a dollar a head per day and there's a feed efficiency improvement which offsets some of that cost um, but ultimately um, you know we've, we've probably commercialized a little faster than the market's been ready to accept but um, yeah and so that's all the asparagopsis story we've been hearing a lot about asparagopsis sure. Where is the push from fashion coming and, and how are you involving that in your bringing in your fashion, love of fashion, to the farming world? Well, the MJ Bale guys were one of our first customers, so it, was, it, it wasn't our, our, um, our, I guess, original route to market in, t- in terms of commercialisation. It, in fact, actually happened through, you know, just a, uh, a conversation that I was having with Jono about how the work that we're doing and how it might fit into their supply chain. So. Um, it almost happened by chance, if you like. But it, what is it really interesting is that when we think about livestock and livestock production in general, it's quite different to, say, motor vehicle manufacturing, where you've got all these components can, that come together to make one, say, vehicle that gets sold. We've got sort of animals that end up going a number of different directions. So, you know, in beef, for example, you've got the choice cuts that go to the finest restaurants, you've got the trim that goes to burger chains, and then you've even got leather that goes into making, you know, jackets and boots and, and, and garments. And the same is true 
or, or sheep um, where you've got obviously lamb you get meat from sheep but we also get fibre and so we, the partnership with MJ Bale it sort of completes the circle for us it's fantastic I'm speaking to uh, Sam Elson and Jonathan Robin about uh, asparagopsis and, and seaweed, how it works in sustainability. We, it is lunchtime at the Evoke Ag conference, which is why it's got a bit noisier and perhaps you can hear the tick on the line. There's probably some phones around that are, are causing a bit of an issue there as well. So I apologise for that. But do keep listening because it's fascinating the work that they are doing. Did you actually sign, have you signed many contracts um, now for uh, commercialising the livestock supplement? So we're working with a number of farmers uh, outside of MJ Bale. We're also working with Beef Farmers, Rangers Valley, um, the Fonterra Dairy Group. Um, we're working with uh, 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 AA Co in Queensland. So a number of producers around the country, um, Stonax in, in WA. So it's starting to get traction and, and it's, it's really exciting. I think uh, it could happen faster if we had our way, but it's um, we're certainly getting momentum. So, Jonathan... When you heard Sam's story in Sea Forest, how did you think MJ Bale can be involved with this? Yeah, it was a pretty easy conversation because at the time we were doing our carbon scoping study, so we were measuring the footprint of a two-piece woolen suit, which is our you know, legacy product. And we were getting um, feedback from our environmental scientist uh, while he was putting the assessment together that... Um, 52% of all emissions related to our soup was coming from the farm itself. So um, Sam and I had, had kind of serendipitously um, you know, met up three months earlier and I knew the work that they were doing um, in terms of taking that CSIRO's, CSIRO science out of the lab, so making it real in Tassie. And then it was just a, it was a quick call to our CEO and founder, Matt Jensen, who's you know, an entrepreneur, and, and also Simon Cameron, uh, the wool grower from Kingston Farm in Tasmania, and it was, you know, we were up and running, you know, maybe six months later, Sam. And how has it been received by consumers? Are they interested? Do they, does it matter to them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, uh, anecdotally, yes. Um, it's not something we really test. We don't really do it, you know, for the, for the likes and quotation marks. It's, it's just, um, you know, if we look at, um, unfortunately, the, the, the fibre production is, um, you know, one of our greatest emission sources. So for us, um, you know, it's tackling that um, head on and, um, and also gives us the opportunity to guinea pig new technology. We've got the best scientists in Australia. We've got the best, you know, wool growers, cotton growers, ag producers. And, um, and I think the opportunity to maybe, um, you know, road test some, um, you know, bleeding edge technology was, was, was always going to be good for us. In the EU, um, there is a bit of a, a look at, as you were saying, the, uh, the carbon footprint of, of wool, for instance, and I know uh, wool growers have gone over to the uh, EU to, to try and spruik the credentials of uh, wool as a product. How do you see something like this playing into that argument that Australians are making that, that wool is more sustainable than perhaps it's being assessed or could be assessed over in Europe? Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, wool, the fibre itself, it's, you know, it's the most wonderful fibre in the world and it is sustainable. It's, you know, I mean, uh, biodegradable, it's um, thermoregulating, moisture wicking, um, you know, it's got it all. Uh, and I think, you know, we've got an opportunity here in Australia with, with the work we're doing with Sea Forest and the Asparagopsis Feed to, to show that Australian merino wool is not only the best fibre in the world, but it's also, um, you know, the most environmentally conscious. Do you have any plans to see what difference the marketing capacity you have now with the, the sustainability element that the asparagopsis brings 
to the, the fibre. Is, the, is there anything you are planning on doing with that to promote that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we had a big, uh, we had a, a massive activation last year. We, 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 you know, the first 48 sheep that had been um, having the asparagopsis feed at Kingston Farm, we got 105 kilograms of uh, greasy wool back. We sent 75 kilograms of that to our weaving partner in Italy, uh, VBC. Um, you know, 17 generation zone, really high quality. But, you know, the natural question was, well, you know, we don't, what are we going to do with it? We want to get it processed and, and spun and made here in Australia. And so um, what we did is we organised a, a, a very eccentric uh, environmentalist called Two Dogs, real name. Uh, Two Dogs <laughs> owns a bike, a kayak and an engineless boat. And he cycled it out with Matty Jensen, our CEO. He cycled the wool out. He sailed it across the Bass Strait in his boat. Um, very brave man and then we got it all done in regional Victoria so it, it got processed um, but Jim Robinson in Geelong and um, uh, Trish Essen uh, in Bacchus Marsh made you know carded it and made the top um, and then Gail Herring from um, Fiber Naturally in, in Macclesfield um, spun it and then the piece de resistance was beautiful Val Chaffee uh, a retiree living in uh, in Ballarat has been hand knitting that yarn into beautiful knits and um, and they're absolutely gorgeous and I'll just come back to you, Sam. I know you got into this space, this, this seaweed space, when you were confronted by the climate challenge that the, 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 the planet is facing and felt like you wanted to do something about it. It's been a few years now since you've gone down this track. Has this project, um, the Asparagopsis project, as well as the, the sustainability offshoots, like the deal with MJ Bale, has that satisfied that concern that, that you had? Uh, not yet, no. I think um, we're on this journey and it's been, we've made incredible progress over what I think is a, a relatively short period of time. We've taken this science, we've developed methods for cultivation which has required you know, a, a deep dive into science, collaborative research programs with a number of universities, we've established assets, we've now built up this significant supply of product for industry but we don't have the drivers in place to be able to realise the impact that we can through the supply of our product into the market. So that's a challenge and I think you know, tying back into the work we're doing with MJ Bale, that, that storytelling, that normalising and socialising um, the idea, creating awareness around this particular seaweed, the impact it can have, you know, Australian science being commercialised, creating a new and environmentally positive seaweed industry for Australia, and, you know, regional employment and all the other things, but also collaboration with agriculture to produce, you know, more sustainable products. That's a story that we need to talk about, um, and... and and that's the only way that consumers can then sort of start to demand uh, action with this. So the other program that we've got going on is with the uh, Burger Chain Grilled. So just uh, a few weeks ago they brought a, a burger to market, um, which is from cows that have been fed the seaweed. And it was a social exercise, if nothing else, where they were asking their customers to pay a dollar more to, see if, you know, for, to save the planet one burger at a time and so what's interesting is that they've had an overwhelmingly positive response to that so, so people have been prepared to pay for it because sometimes yeah. it, there's a bit of a green halo and people say that they are keen on this but when they actually to put money in their pocket they may not actually if it costs more may not actually quite so translate sales I absolutely agree with you so I think that that is true and but I also think that there's an, an integrity piece around it as well so I think you know storytelling having you know, obviously the seaweed farm being a part, part of that CSIRO Australia's peak science body science backing this technology is really critical in, in terms of uh, delivering, uh, I guess, um, you know, trust, I guess, to the end consumer. But it's a, uh, um, but these activations and you know the work with MJ Bale, they they help raise awareness, but that's not creating global impact on climate change yet.
we've got more work to do. Well, it's certainly been a very dynamic space in Australia in the last couple of years. You've got some competitors out there now. There's one a pretty big one in South Australia, I can imagine. Um, and, but it, it's certainly going from strength to strength. And, uh, I mean, sometimes it seems almost too good to be true. I think I've read some of these claims about asparagopsis and gone, really? Is it really that good? But I guess we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that, that body of evidence is getting bigger all the time. All of the universities are doing lots of methane work, and every time the study is published, you know, it's, it continues to show very strong levels of abatement and no impact on food safety or animal welfare. So it's, it's nothing but positive, and, and we encourage, you know, we have a big problem to solve. You know, there's a billion cows on the planet. When you talk about competition, it's really not competition. There's a, a very large addressable market, and there's room for many players, and so we encourage, you know, everyone, and we, we hope that everyone does well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jay. And just before I let you go, Jonathan, so you don't, you don't have any way of quantifying what this has meant to your company, but beyond just the, the sea forest work, is there anything else that the farmers are doing that are improving the sustainability that, that MJ Bale is really pushing as well? I mean, Kingston Farm in, in Tasmania, it's, it's what... It's our single source wool partner. We've been working with Kingston for almost eight years now. It's a conservationist enterprise. Um, you know, it's home to 8% of all indigenous grasslands in Tasmania, uh, you know, 14 threatened flora and fauna. And so what we do is, is we take their wool, get it woven in Italy by our weaving partner there, and then get it uh, constructed into suits. When we, when we sell that suit or tuxedo or tie in store, we give, uh, it's called a store to farm rebate, so we give a percentage of every sale back to Simon Cameron from Kingston. He has to, as part of our agreement, he has to invest that rebate into projects that preserve the biodiversity and regenerate, you know, the land, whether it's from, whether it's, you know, tree, shrub planting or river soil erosion mitigation. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful, almost virtuous circle. It's almost as virtuous as your guilt-free burgers, Sam. Um, and, and it's also a way to, you know, you have the wool grower involved with you. They, they, you know, Simon Cameron has come with us to Italy, to the Weaver, he's gone to the menswear fairs, and, you know, and he knows where, exactly where his wool's going, and we know exactly what has gone into it. It's amazing, you know, just if I can add one thing, you know, having met Simon, you know, I think he's in his 70s, gets up every morning, he's passionate about this, feeds his sheep, middle of winter in Tasmania, you can imagine what that's like, but oh, he's yeah. passionate about the outcomes and, and leaving the, his property in a better state than he found it and, and having more sustainable wool production. So um, I really take my hat off to him. Well, it's, a, it's an area we, we usually focus on the, just the methane abatement for the livestock from an asparagopsis or seaweed point of view, but it's interesting to see how it can be applied to fashion as well. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Cass. Yeah, thank you very much, Cass. Sam Elsom and uh, Jonathan Lobin there speaking about how seaweed is uh, improving or working with the sustainability of wool. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 14 minutes to one. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Kandinen Group and ABC Rural. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff, live from the Evoke Ag Conference in Adelaide. And there's a myriad of topics here, but one thing that caught my eye was how consumers 
are driving a lot of the change that is being talked about at this event. There's agri-tech, there's, there's uh, innovations on farm, but a lot of the focus has been on either the supply chain or the end user, the customer, when it comes to, to change in agri-tech and, uh, and agricultural solutions. The, the food industry is evolving rapidly. And Dr Nina, Nina Welty is with the CSIRO looking at uh, trusted supply chains. She's the uh, impact area lead. Good afternoon. G'day. Hey. How are you going? Well, uh, so basically, how much of an impact is cons- the consumer having driving change in, uh, in the food industry? The consumers are the end of it. Whatever consumers, consumers drive our demands, but it's also, I'd like to just take a step back. We are all consumers. We are part of these decisions that we make and which producers and manufacturers of food and products that we rely on, they're respo- they want to make the products of the best quality to get to us as fast as they can, but they also want to receive the best value for it. So it's Consumers drive it, but do they have a choice in knowing that their expectations are being met? This is a question that we're trying to work on at CSIRO and provide that information through the supply chain so that everyone along the way knows that their decisions align to the outcomes that they want. So what are the main consumer values? Everybody wants affordable and safe food. It's, it's first principles, but we want it to be, um, it needs to be sustainable economically viable for the regions, nutritious and healthy for all of us. Sustainability shouldn't be at a premium. We all expect our food to be good quality and not hurt anyone along the way. It's somewhat idealistic to say that in some ways, um, in that sometimes sustainable products that market themselves as sustainable or often come at a premium. And... Um, I would ask this question of the last speakers as well. People say they want sustainably produced things, green credentials, etc. But when they actually have to pay for it, are they actually willing to pay a premium for products? No, because it's an expectation that this is how it should be. This should be the baseline. And I think sustainability isn't a premium. Neither, Just like access to high quality, nutritious food should not be a premium. Access to clean water. These are not premiums. This is what we need. And we're trying to make sure that sustainability isn't a premium, but it's equitable. It's ethically delivered. It's creating value across the supply chain. And actually, it doesn't need to cost more because our producers are already doing it. It's just making sure that that information is being passed through the supply chain um, and they're receiving the value for those good practices that are already happening. So we're trying to make these, um, make this more efficient so that it's not an extra burden and it doesn't cost more. It should just be how it is. And there's a lot of inefficiencies that create the cost increases that we're trying to work at at CSIRO, um, behind the scenes and the systems of it, of how compliance and regulation and data sharing can happen between supply chain part actors to make ensure that sustainability doesn't come at a cost to the end consumer. And one thing when we're talking here, sustainability for one person isn't always sustainability for another person. How do you actually get a consistent view on that to work into your systems? It's never going to be consistent. Um, On Monday I was at a, a, a workshop where we were trying to figure out how to solve food waste. If you're able to reduce the amount of food that is being thrown away and into the bin, you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions because it's not going into compost. So if we can make sure that food is produced, is consumed 
by people or you know at its peak quality that is inherently sustainable it's not always just about the on-farm production practices and what's sustainable in the tropics in the north of australia isn't going to be sustainable down here in adelaide when it's 40 degrees It's certainly, um, it always comes up about what actually is sustainability. And like you say, you can look at sustainable workforce, you can look at environmental sustainability, human sustainability, there's all sorts of elements to it as well. But as part of this, uh, and something that's come about through social media, through, uh, I, I guess, increased scrutiny on agriculture is transparency. And how much is that playing a role in consumer attitudes and sustainability or the perceptions of sustainability? If we're able to be transparent, we can be sustainable. We know it and we, we can trust the information that's coming to us. Right now, this is, a, this, is, this is the ideal now, is transparency, not sustainability. Um, but there is a willingness that I haven't seen before where industry, government, research are all aligning to try and create this um, transparent traceability systems for Australia globally because it's inherently tied to food safety, food security, um, and equitable access. So you touched on it just before, but I'm interested to know how CSIRO how, yep. is working in this space. So, yep, so CSIRO has, uh, is part of uh, a mission. So CSIRO has a missions proje- program, which are like, you know, trying to get to Mars. We're trying to do big things, not alone, but with others. And one of these is the Trusted Agri-Food Exports Mission, which is looking at how to increase market access for Australian producers globally and exports, how to change and create efficiencies in our compliance system, creating uh, continuous assurance platforms, sensors, allowing that information to be used um, to prevent non-compliant events of food safety outbreaks or biosecurity outbreaks, um, and also creating new tools that verify the credentials of a food. So a credential is where it was made, how it was made, was it organic, was it wild-caught or farmed salmon, Um, is it uh, um, from Queensland or from Adelaide. So we're looking at ways that provide objective evidence to verify all of those um, desires and expectations of food. And how has that been applied to the market? Yes, so this works by changing how the market can operate, by creating these efficiencies, for example, with regulation. Creating a continuous assurance platform allows uh, a meat processor to look at temperature not as a point in time once a month, but as a minute to minute to see if their cold chain is creeping up towards a non above four degrees where it's non-compliant and allows them to have an action preventing a problem. And the regulator then doesn't need to come and check. The audit system becomes streamlined and we're able to pass that information on forward. So it's trying to take the information we have, make it more useful um, so that decisions can be supported with evidence to meet the outcomes that we all want to have. How far away is this? Look, we're, try- we're doing it now. So this mission has been uh, two years in the, in the making. It's a five-year mission in partnership with MLA and, the, and DAF, the Department for Ag, Food and Fisheries. Um, we are in, we're doing this. We are piloting, working with industry to uh, make demonstration cases. 
and so we can get it out and, and, and partner. And that's why we're here at Evoke, to talk about this and see who else has these problems. Well, it's a very exciting space, and I really appreciate you taking me through some of them. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much. Welty from the CSIRO. And uh, yes, yeah, some, some great work there. We talk a lot about uh, what consumers are wanting to see from their food production. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to follow that. But we will finish up with uh, one of the guest speakers, one of the keynote speakers here at the event is Mary Shellman, who is the founder of Shellman Group. And she has quite a resume. She was the former director of Harvard Business School's agribusiness program. And she works with companies and governments and investors worldwide. And I've been very interested to hear what she has to say. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. So I said at the start of the program, really, the last two years can be summed up by climate, COVID, conflict and cost. Right? I think right. it's a very good, good summary. But how is that affecting our ability to produce food? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, we've learned a lot over the last two years when we can continue to produce food. And we, I think the industry came through very well. But, you know, um, the, what we've learned, I think, is that we need to build additional resilience into the system, um, the ability to adapt to whether it's, you know, climate crises or, uh, you know, supply chain disruptions or even, you know, consumers who are, who are looking for different things and what they're, they're um, eating. So technology, of course, plays a big role in that innovation, um, but maybe where on the good side, um, at least in the U.S. where I'm from, the COVID kind of accelerated the adoption of technology in ag, I think, or even at the consumer level, like more people shopped online, you started having to buy your products online, we had conferences online, um, found that we could com communicate, you know, for different things. And so that, I think, you know, helped with this, we talk about the digitization of the supply chain that we need that, that really hasn't been. But um, kind of looking, you know, where We're we are now. Yeah, looking where we are now we, we still have this kind of gap between so much innovation there but the adoption at the farm level is is a challenge and there was a comment made yesterday about how people have to be look, we can have all the technology yeah. in the world people have to be involved and when you see increased digitization is that going to happen I, well it is because we need the information so i'm an engineer by training and basically i know that you know it's not until you start measuring something that you can actually figure out how to improve it and get better at it. So we talk about the journey we need to make around sustainability um, to either adapt to climate change or even to help you know, mitigate climate change. All that depends on you know, making decisions and we, to have that decisions, we need to have the data to be able to, to make those decisions better. So I think that digitization is very important. And then if you can move that data through the supply chain, um, you know, the, you know, we've got food companies that are making commitments in terms of, you know, ESG, that they need the data because they need to be able to say, you know, the impact is actually at the farm level. It's not whether we run our plant on, uh, you know, we cut the electricity use at our plant by 20%. That doesn't move the needle. What moves the needle in the food industry is what happens on the farm. And then at consumers, you know, are also interested. Very quickly before we wrap yeah. up, unfortunately, which changes do you think will be temporary and which ones do you think will be permanent? Well, I think, you know, what we've learned around... Um, it, the labor challenges and the need for automation in the industry is very much, I think, you know, from the standpoint of cost, that really pushes us to uh, think about how do we do things, you know, kind of, you know, moving, um, using technology to do that. I think, um, you know, maybe more aligned supply chains rather than a global free market, you know, where grain just kind of moves around or food moves around or wherever it's willing to pay for it. 
we could keep chatting for a long time, but unfortunately I have run out of time on the Country Hour, but uh, it's certainly a lot of food for thought here at this event. There's people here to tackle these issues, so thank you very much for joining me, Mary Sherman. You're welcome. That's all from me at Evoke. I'll be back in the studio tomorrow, so stick with us. It's coming up to 1 o'clock. Time for news. ABC Radio. There's lots of possibility. There's a lot of amazing people here. I love being here because I learn something new every single day. Great place to live. Wouldn't live anywhere else. It's just lovely. You almost get a bit teary, to be honest. This is ABC Radio. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.